Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. Surely fans, we have a wonderful episode for you today. We are comparing two massive, iconic, hard rock, heavy metal bands, Metallica and Guns N' Roses. We just finished up with Metallica's Black Album, so if you have not yet heard that, go back and listen to that episode. And today we're starting our journey into Use Your Illusion 1 by Guns N' Roses. This is going to be awesome. I remember when these two albums, these two Use Your Illusion albums came out. The anticipation for these two albums was huge. Before we get going, I just want to point something out. We have been talking to each other now for a couple of years face-to-face. And one of the reasons that I can do that is because you don't have nose hair. <laughs> have you been talking to people and like you can't even concentrate on what they're saying because of their nose hair? Absolutely. They like talk to you. They like dangle. <laughs> it dangles. Yes, it wiggles. It's it's a total distraction. Absolutely. And so let me let me say, if you are one of those guys, we have a product that is supporting the podcast that you need to check out. It's called the Weed Whacker and it is from Manscaped. It is an amazing product. It trims your nose hair. It's not embarrassing. You just stick it up there. It takes care of it. You're not going to look at people and bother them. Right. And I'm one of those guys who's self-conscious about my nose hair. So somebody that you're going to see me and I'm going to be like yanking them out and wincing in pain. (laughs) Don't do that. There is a special thing that they make. And they've also just released, in addition to the Weed Whacker, they have just released something called the Lawn Mower. If you have other areas of your body that you're looking to trim up. And I'd like to point out that a giraffe is easier to see in the plains than it is in the forest. Oh, that's that's wonderful. Yes, yes, it is. So and it's very it's very good around sensitive areas, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, they have also an entire shave kit called the Ultra Smooth Package. Package. <laughs> <laughs> you get the idea. So who it, doesn't want their package ultra smooth? Right, right. So don't forget to go to manscaped.com and use the promo code FANSIDED20 to get 20% off your order and free shipping. Whack it. <laughs> Perfect. So midnight, like, you know, the record companies are the record stores are not allowed to release the album before the set date for the album. So record stores across the country opened at midnight in order to be able to accommodate all of the people who are lining up for this album. Now, at the point that the album comes out, Slash is completely burned out from having recorded the album. I mean, they finished it up in August and <laughs> they and they released it in September. And by the way, let's point that out right now. Okay. Okay. It's 30 years old this week. It is. These these albums are 30 years old this week. So 30 years ago, Slash is about to go to Africa to vacation and you know get a little rest from the massive amount of work that he's just done. But he thinks, okay, before I go, I'm gonna go see what the album sales are doing, right? You know, so he shows up at midnight at Tower Records on Sunset Strip, where they used to play, yeah, where they got their start, and he watches through a two-way mirror as all of the sales are going on. And just 10 years before that, store detectives had been watching him through the two-way mirror because he was stealing stuff (laughs) from the same record store that his record was about to blow out of the water. 
It's incredible. It's incredible. So like you said, these two albums were both released at midnight, September 17th, 91. The date that we're releasing this is September 14th of 2021. Yeah. So almost 30 years on the dot. And then of course, next week we'll talk through Usual Illusion 2. Right. And then we- compare all three. Yes, compare all three albums. Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 both released at the exact same time. This was not a sequel. This was We Are Releasing Two Albums at the Same Time had never been done before. No one had ever done this. You know, people would release double albums, but you had to buy you had to buy it all in one package, right? Yeah. But people could go and choose. They could say, I want Use Your Illusion 1 or I want Use Your Illusion 2 or I want both. Right. And that was a nice little concession by the band right there. Well, kind of a concession. As it ended up, it was a huge sales bump. (laughs) Well, that's true, too. Huge sales bump. Now, Usual Illusion 2 was a better seller out of the gate due to a song that we've already talked about, You Could Be Mine, from the Terminator 2 soundtrack. back to earlier this summer when we were covering Terminator 1 versus Terminator 2 and Arnold Schwarzenegger pulled a gun out of the roses because the gun was in the roses. (laughs) There's a great story that goes along with Arnold Schwarzenegger and the guys and how he got them to participate in Terminator. We'll talk about that next week. All right. Let's hey before we get into too much of this D I want to go through a basic timeline of what has happened since the release of Appetite for Destruction, which was released in 1987. Yes. And then you got four years until Usual Illusion 1 and 2 come out. Right. Okay. And I just want to talk through, this is by no means exhaustive. Right. They were into all kinds of craziness. Mm -hmm. But let's just talk about, let's just hit some of the highlights. Okay, so, and just for before that, if you have not yet heard our episode on Appetite for Destruction, go back and listen to that one. We've got the history of the band. We've got track by track on that fantastic album. Um, But yeah, we're kind of picking up where we left off. Appetite for Destruction comes out. They start touring for that album. They leave the country and nobody's really heard of them. 87, not really in a big interest in that album. They become big in the rest of the world. And then as they're gone, touring the rest of the world, that's when they hit big in the US and they come back to the US and and suddenly everybody knows who they are. Like they can't go shopping at the grocery store because their pictures are on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. And people are like, hey, that's you. And they know who they are in the US. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. We, we did talk a little bit about this during the Appetite for Destruction that David Geffen had to call MTV personally and say, please play this video. Right. Welcome to the jungle. <laughs> Yeah, right. MTV's concession was okay. We'll play it at four o'clock in the morning. morning. Just it'll be over. It'll be done. And then everybody started calling in because they wanted to see the video again. And it literally the phone lines caught on fire because of all the calls. That's right. So Appetite for Destruction is released in 1987, but Welcome to the Jungle didn't really catch fire until early 1988. Yep. That's when I sort of became aware of what was going on with him. Right. Then the summer of 88, Sweet Child of Mine blows the roof off. (laughs) 
is a re-release Welcome to the Jungle. Then after that, Paradise City takes off. Appetite for Destruction is one of the biggest selling albums of all time. Yeah. Okay. So let's pick up right there. Greatest, greatest selling debut album, if I remember right. I think that's right. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. So November of 1987, Axel assaults several security guards in Atlanta. <laughs> right. Okay. We're just hitting the highlights just here. Just the highlights. Right. Okay. In 1988, mm-hmm. Guns N' Roses was in a movie. Do you know this? Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the badly lip sync version of <laughs> Welcome to the Jungle by the one and only Mr. Jim Carrey before he had become big. If you have never seen Clint Eastwood's The Deadpool, it's a Dirty Harry movie. Yeah. Jim Carrey is a rock star who dies of a heroin overdose. Supposedly. I mean, he's murdered. Yeah. By Liam Neeson and a ponytail, right? Liam Neeson. <laughs> you got Qui-Gon Jinn killing uh, Lloyd Christmas. <laughs> It's uh, pretty amazing. And Guns N' Roses, they are in the movie. Yeah, they're the band at the funeral. They are. Slash actually shoots a harpoon in the movie. First. <laughs> it's very weird. Okay, so that happens in 1988. Uh, in August of 1988, a riot breaks out during a Guns N' Roses show. Really? I, I, <laughs> shocker, right? Yeah. Okay. In November of 1988, GNR Lies is released. Okay? Right. We talked about how... Before Appetite for Destruction, they had this EP called Live Like an F and Suicide. Right. Okay. So you, you took that EP, yep. matched up with four songs that they did in one day, acoustics, acoustically. Yeah, acoustic set, one day in the studio. One day, that album peaked at number two. That one, by the way, just so we can cover that, that was literally them all sitting together and playing the music together. You know, so much of recorded music you hear is one artist, you know, the guitarist comes in and puts down his bit, the drummer comes down and puts down his bit, and then they they put it all together through the production. With Lies, it was them in a room. One day. Is them in a room. That was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And so from that album, you might be familiar with the song Patience. Yeah. big hit for them we covered that one yes and uh and we would go right into Which was in a church and completely inappropriate. But anyway. <laughs> uh, also from that album, you have uh, Used to Love Her. Yep. It's a sarcastic song about a guy who kills his girlfriend because she's driving him crazy. Yep. I can still hear her complain. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great one. It's a, You have the acoustic remake of You're Crazy from Appetite for Destruction. Yep. And then you have the most controversial song in their entire career. Oh, yeah. A song called One in a Million. You're one in a million. Yeah, that's what you are. Shooting star. Maybe someday we'll see you. 
Okay. Now that will come into play here in just a second when we talk about their opening for the Rolling Stones. Mm-hmm. But there is some um, anti-immigrant type of things in there. There's some racist remarks. There's some homophobic type of things yep. in that song. Yes. Okay. Slash is black. Yeah, he's yeah, half black. Yeah. Half black. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. We'll talk about that here in a second. So Lies is released in November of 88. Okay. Yeah. Also in August of 1988. Two fans are crushed to death during the Monsters of Rock show. Yeah, we touched on that a little bit on our Appetite episode that GNR was initially kind of blamed for it for inciting the crowd. But actually what had happened was that Axel was yelling at people to stop pushing forward. He was trying to help and they didn't even know that those guys had died until after they were told <clears throat> after the show was over and they're, you know, going to the restaurant together. Right. Right. Okay. In September of 89, mm-hmm. we we'll move forward a year yep. at the MTV Music Awards yep. back when they were a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. The band that they used to open for, Motley Crue, yeah. presented them with an award. Yeah. And then Vince Neil promptly punches out Izzy Stradlin backstage. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh-huh. Izzy and Izzy apparently had made some derogatory remarks about Vince's wife and Vince didn't like it. And Izzy basically said, so what? And so he decked him. Axel gets involved. And then Vince makes this thing like, let's go, Axel. Anytime you're ready, me and you get in the ring. Mm -hmm. Okay. Also that same night, Don Henley played drums on their live version of Patience. Because Stephen Adler was in rehab. Because Stephen Adler was in rehab. Yep. Keep that in mind as we move forward. Okay. Yep. So in October of 89, the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger reaches out and says, I want you guys to open for the Rolling Stones. Yeah. Okay. They also had contacted Living Color. Oh. Who you know from Cult of Personality. Yeah. Right. Well, they're an all black rock band. Right. And they opened first. And from the stage, they called out Guns N' Roses for their racist remarks in the song One in a Million. Okay. Axel, who was not at the show at that time, mm-hmm. the management instructed one of the drivers, go freaking find Axel and don't take no for an answer. Mm-hmm. If you've got to punch him out to get him in the car, go punch him out. All right. So he went over, they snatch and grab Axel, drag him up there. Yeah. As he's taking the stage, he realizes that Living Color has called him out. Uh-huh. That makes him really mad. Right. So when he gets up on stage, he proceeds to say, if certain members of the band don't quit dancing with Mr. Brownstone, this is the last show that you're ever going to see from Guns N' Roses. And that was the beginning of the decline, if you will. Slash knows this was in reference to him. Right. That made him hate Axel. Yep. Duff was humiliated and embarrassed. Yep. Plus, you had all this controversy going on with Living Color and One in a Million and all this stuff. Right. So- that's just one night in the night of Guns N' Roses. Right. Continuing on, in February of 90, Dizzy rejoins the band. Right. He's the piano player for the Usual Illusion album. Wait a minute. I'm sorry. Did you say Guns N' Roses has a piano player? A piano player. What the heck is up with that? He was about to be evicted from his apartment. Uh-huh. Called his friend Axel said, I'm about to be evicted from my apartment. And Axel's like, hey, no problem. Just come join the band. You can play piano. You guys don't have a pianist. We do now. <laughs> <laughs> In July of 90, Steven Adler is fired. Okay. He's their original drummer. So somewhere around this time, Niven is using the fact that they haven't produced an album in a long time as a negotiation piece for Geffen Records to renegotiate their contracts so that they can make more money. They're already spending tons of money. He wants them to make more money and basically uses the fact that they have two albums worth of music to say, hey, we'll give you this. 
when you renegotiate the contract, but until you do, we're not we're not going to give it to you. So Alan Niven is the one who gets them a renegotiated contract, is going to make them a ton more money and sets in place this thing for two albums. Well, as you mentioned, Stephen Adler is completely drug riddled at this time. Like the way that it was going for Slash and Duff, they're like, Steven, you're too messed up. And it's me and Slash. Who yeah. are telling? I'm like, we're the guys that everybody else says it too much. And we're telling you, you got to pull it back, at least for the shows, man. You got to do something. And so they had this contract with him where you've got to go to rehab and you're, you know, one more strike and you're out. And he was out of the band, back in the band. And then finally they're like, he's still completely addicted to drugs, hiding them. We've just got to get rid of them. And so all that Steven Adler knows is that he gets another stack of papers in front of him, yet another contract to sign like he has already. And by this time, they've hired Doug Goldstein and gotten rid of Alan Niven. And Doug Goldstein says, this contract says, every time you get high, you have to pay us $2,000. Well, that's not what the contract said. What it said was, you're out of the band and all you get is $2,000. Ooh, and so once Steven Adler was less under the influence of drugs and realized what had happened, he filed a lawsuit against Guns N' Roses. You think? Yeah. I, I think so. That gets resolved a little bit further down the line, and he ends up getting paid about $2.5 million plus 15% of royalties for all of the songs that he was a part of. So a little bit better of an exit deal, a little better golden umbrella, but still just th- to think that you would go, all right, original member of the band, you get $2,000. See you later. The royalties for Appetite of Destruction alone are worth how much? I mean, I, you're right. Best-selling debut album of all time. There's no telling. Steven Adler has had over 28 overdoses uh-huh. He's had uh, several heart attacks and he has one stroke that left him with a permanent speech impediment. And he can't even talk right anymore. Yeah. Drugs are bad, kids. Just say no. Don't do drugs. Okay. In January of 91 is when the Use Your Illusion tour starts. This is nine months ahead of the release of the album. Right. A lot of these songs people would hear on the tour before they ever got on the album. And then once the album came out, they never played it again. <laughs> it's, crazy. it's crazy. Yeah. Okay. On July 2nd of 1991, yeah. there is a infamous concert that Guns N' Roses played in St. Louis where... There was a guy who is taking photos of Axel. Yep. He didn't want him to. Right. That was the agreement. Security was to prevent photos or film. Right. And he kept trying to tell the security guys to, you know, take the camera away from this guy. Yeah. Axel believes that they he was friends with the security guys. Uh-huh. And in the middle of the concert, he just says, Well, thanks to the lame-ass security, I'm going home. Well, before that, he jumps into the crowd and attacks the Oh, guy. that's right. That's right. So, like, GNR have their own security, obviously. And then you've got the security for whatever the venue is. And... Axel said, our security guys had told these guys over and over to not let these people get so drunk. You're supposed to have a minimum, but people are chunking these beer bottles at us. And I'm just, you know, it's been pushed and pushed. And then we tell them, hey, no cameras. All right. We can't have any cameras here. And lo and behold, here's a guy right here on the front row taking my picture over and over again. And I just said, that's enough. Nobody's going to listen to what we're telling you has to happen. I'll take care of it myself. And that's how he jumps off the stage. And that's how he gets arrested a couple of years later once they get back from tour of, you know, the rest of the world. You know, we looked 
before we started recording, in the liner notes in User Illusion One, <laughs> there's a special dedication to St. Louis. <laughs> Under the thanks. Dear St. Louis, we love you. Guns N- and Roses. That is not what they said. I believe it says FU St. Louis. FU St. Louis, right <laughs> in the middle of all of it. Yeah. These guys are awesome at giving the FU to people. The list is long and distinguished. Yeah. There's some great, there's some great thank yous on there. You got Alice Cooper, you got Sebastian uh, Bach, Rachel Bolin, Shannon Hoon. Hoon. Yep. Yeah. Okay. September 17th of 91, Usual Illusion 1 and 2 is released. Okay. November 7th of 91, Izzy Stradlin quits the band. So by that time, Adler was gone. Adler was gone. They had brought in the former drummer for the cult. Matt Sorum. Yep. And with Matt Sorum, I mean, Matt is obviously a gifted drummer, but he's not the same drummer. It's different. And Izzy said, whenever Steven wasn't there... It didn't have that swing in and out kind of motion that made appetite great. And he just felt like it was all wrong. And he also had gotten sober and nobody else had. And so he loses the drummer who thinks is a key piece replaced by a guy he doesn't care for, who then immediately starts doing drugs with Duff and Slash. And he's newly sober. And he's like, is this really, you know, what my life is going to be like? And he says, I'm done. At the height of their fame, the man who is arguably the originator of the band says, guys, I'm out. He's like the soul of the band. He wrote a lot of the songs. Yeah. He was missing from the You Could Be Mine video. Mm -hmm. He didn't like to do videos. He didn't like to tour. He just kind of liked to write songs, you know? Right. Well, forget it. I'm out. All right. Briefly, in October of 92, you have the Freddie Mercury Benefit Concert. If you listen closely, you can actually hear Axel tell protesters to shove it. were urged not to have Guns N' Roses play. Be, again, one in a million, the homophobic things that came out there. A little tough to defend that while you're honoring Freddie Mercury? Right. But Brian May, the guitarist for Queen, is like, the fact that they're here is enough and they still play. They and- did. Just a couple more dates I want to hit while we're on the subject. Okay. August 8th of 1992. A day that will live in infamy. This is where we kind of join these two together. These iconic rock bands with mammoth albums decide we're going to tour together. Metallica and Guns N' Roses on the same ticket? That's a lot of money, bro. Gosh. That's a lot of money because I'm going to buy that ticket, right? Of course. If they're coming anywhere near me, I'm going to see this concert. Absolutely. Tragically, it's more likely that you're going to show up than that Axel is. <laughs> it's funny because Metallica knew that Guns N' Roses was notoriously late to show up for shows. Yeah. And so rather than fight over who was the closer, they just said, we'll open every concert. Right. We'll get in. We'll get out. You guys deal with the drama after that. And because they were such big bands, there was a complete set change that had to occur in between the sets. 
And so Metallica would get done and they would start tearing down Metallica stuff. They would start putting up Guns N' Roses stuff. And we're talking about a couple of hours couple of worth hours. of time where all of these hot and bothered headbanger fans are just sitting there, standing there, waiting there, sweating their balls off and just waiting for just waiting. GNR to start. Yeah. That's uh, not a good recipe, bro. Nope. So on August the 8th, of 92. Yeah. Metallica's playing their set. James Hetfield's on stage. Yep. During the song Fade to Black, which we talked a little bit about last week. Yep. He gets a little lost, not sure where he is. Some new pyrotechnics in the uh, show that they're doing, and he walks into one that wasn't there in the previous shows. He's disoriented, and that thing sets his flesh on fire. Second and third degree burns. His uh, The hand where he's actually strumming the guitar gets it the worst. Yep. And a very, very uh, serious condition. He's rushed to the hospital. Lars has to come on stage and say, There was an incident with uh, the pyrotechnics. Unfortunately, James uh, is on his way to the hospital right now. And we're very sorry, but we can't continue the concert for you guys tonight. Right. And at that moment, that's when Guns N' Roses could have come in, saved the day, rocked their balls off, right? come in and helped out. Well, they got about 45 minutes in and Axel decides that his voice doesn't feel good and so yeah. he's going home. Because they were under the stress and trying to change things over quickly and people probably weren't prepared because it was an hour sooner, they didn't have the monitors set properly, right? And right. so the band couldn't hear themselves. Monitors are key. Couldn't hear themselves and so they got frustrated. But at that point, yeah, if if you're that guy, you just got to go, okay, guys, fix the problem and we're going to start singing again. Not, I'm tired of this, I quit. Right. Sorry for all our Guns N' Roses fans who want to defend this, but I don't know how you do. No, the, yeah, no, no, there's just it's no indefensible. way. Jason Newsted said that shortly after they went back to backstage and they're like, what's going on? What are you guys doing? And Axel said, you know, my voice is gone. I can't sing while he's smoking a cigarette and drinking out of champagne glass. I'd have another cigarette, but I can't sing. So what happened after that was the fans got a little upset. Yeah, they did. They. This is in Montreal, by the way. Right. They turned over cars. They Set the place on fire. Multiple fires. Riots. About 13 different people and officers injured in the onslaught that occurred. It was mass hysteria. Dogs and cats <laughs> living together. But more importantly than that, Metallica lost all respect for Guns N' Roses at that moment. Yeah. Slash said he couldn't look any of those guys in the eye. He didn't, they didn't like him that much to begin with. No. But that killed him. That killed it. Yeah. It was over. So after that, there's there's a part in the documentary that we talked about last time, the year and a half in the life right. of uh, Metallica, mm -hmm. where James Hetfield reads Axl Rose's tour writer, where he's got all of his special requests and is kind of making fun of him. So the way that Axl responded was to do it in front of the crowd at a later concert called Hetfield a racist for his decision to pull body count from the tour and called him a stupid little and then insulted the rest of the band as well. Well, so, so much they for were, uh, coming over for Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> so much for making amends right there. Yeah. Okay. July 17th of 93, the Use Your Illusion tour finally ends. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I just heard this. <laughs> Gilby Clark said that on the final show of the Use Your Illusion Tour, Rose goes, hey, enjoy your last show. Apparently, he didn't just mean of the tour. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
And then sometime in the mid nineties, this was kept under wraps Yeah, slash overdosed. Yeah. Died. Yeah. Did the Nikki six dead for eight minutes thing. Mm-hmm. Was revived and. They called the tour manager and said, Hey, one of your band members has passed out in front of the elevator on, you know, like the fifth floor. <laughs> and he goes up there and slashes blue, yeah. like no heartbeat. He's dead. But he made it. Shot of adrenaline kickstarted his heart. He made it. And then on May the 10th of 94, Mm -hmm. due to excessive alcohol, Duff McKagan's pancreas explodes. Yeah. You read his book, right? I did. That was a huge part of his book. And that that happened right around the same time that he had seen Kurt Cobain for the last time. Like That's right. They flew on the plane together, both Seattle guys, both going home. Duff is dealing with his demons and thinks, hey, we actually had a good plane ride together, even though they had their differences over the course of these things, which we can talk about here in a little bit as well. But he thinks, hey, I need to, I need to holler at him and we need to have lunch so that I can kind of yeah. Talk to him. Right. You know, help him out maybe. And then about a week later, Kurt Cobain's body's found. Listen to this. If Axel had had his way, yeah. Nirvana would have opened for Metallica and Guns N' Roses. Can you imagine? I can imagine. And it would have been epic. So we talked about it in the Metallica episode that the reason that the diehard thrash fans for Metallica didn't like the Black Album was because... It had mass appeal. And these guys had seen Metallica as a revolution against the spandex and the glam rock and the hair and the makeup and all of that. And so when the Black Album comes out and everybody knows who they are and everybody says this is the best album, we can see how that's frustrating to those fans because they saw them as a revolution. And then the revolution became the man. Appetite for Destruction. Same thing, man. It's a revolution. They weren't wearing the spandex. They, well, Axel did a little bit, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) But it was a revolution, right? These guys were different than those hair metal guys that were super popular in 87 and 88. And so again, you've got this, yeah, these guys are us. They represent an anti-establishment thing. But what happened between appetite and user illusion, again, He had no idea. He thinks he's still in the revolution group whenever Nirvana comes out, right? Right. He still thinks he's in the revolt. Well, it turns out he's completely lost his way. There's one concert where you can hear him talking about how much he likes Nirvana, right? This is the voice of of revolution and rock and roll is about that rebellion. And this is that. And then a little bit later on, once he's been, once Kurt Cobain has said, screw you, you're just part of the establishment. He's like really insulting. And he's like, you know, we're the ones that were the revolution. We're the ones that did it different than everybody else. And now we've got 30 million people in front of us. And I'm like, dude, you can't even hear yourself talk about how your criteria is how many people are at your concert. And then he goes on to say, and they're doing drugs while she's pregnant with that baby. And if it has any uh, birth defects, then I think they should both be arrested and go to prison. Axel's not afraid to speak his mind. He is. He needs to read this book called How to Win Friends and Influence People. <laughs> oh, my gosh. There is so much to talk about. But we have two albums to go through. I know. And so we probably ought to get into the albums. Okay. <laughs> Let's get into it. Okay. So just real briefly, the cover art of Usual Illusion 1 and 2. Yes. So Usual Illusion 1, if you don't remember, is the yellow and red version of the old painting. They call it the School of Athens. That's the name of the painting. Yeah, it's in the Sistine Chapel, correct? I've seen it. Been there. Anyway, they took that old ancient painting... 
did a version of it. Renaissance painting, yes, sir. Yes, the School of Athens. Yes. And uh, Usual Illusion 1 is the yellow and red version. Okay. Okay. Now then, when Usual Illusion came out, yep. couldn't sell it in Walmart. Couldn't sell it in Kmart. Why? You had that big fat parental advisory sticker on it. The, so Walmart didn't sell parental advisory CDs? Not initially. Hmm. So I think they softened on that. But 500,000 albums of these two are sold in two hours. That's insane. It went gold in two hours. Two hours. Use Your Illusion 1 sold 685,000. Use Your Illusion 2 ultimately sold 750,000. Use Your Illusion 1 was number two and Use Your Illusion 2 was number one. Yep. Okay, D. So one of the cool new things that we've been doing is we've been having what we call the Shirley Spotlight. Our good friend Brad Moore in Monroe, Louisiana, wanted to weigh in on the Nirvana Pearl Jam episode that we did a few weeks ago, fall of 91. And he's got something to say about that matchup. Let's hear from Brad. Before he gets started, I just got to say, Brad is one of our best fans, always giving us great insight into new things and excited to have him give us his opinion on this. Good morning, everyone. This is Brad Moore from Monroe, Louisiana. I wanted to weigh in on a past episode of Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast, which pitted the two super albums of the early 90s, Pearl Jam's 10 and Nirvana's Nevermind. These two albums were so good and came along at such a good time when I was really, really deep and interested into a lot of different types of music. And it just opened up a Pandora's box that I climbed into and never climbed out of. It opened the door to other bands like Smashing Pumpkins, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, Screaming Trees. I could keep going forever. I still listen to all these bands to this date. But back to the matchup between these two albums, Nirvana's Nevermind was probably the first one I heard. It was just something so different and it was straightforward. It was in your face, just straight up hard rock and roll. I loved it. Got to listen to Pearl Jam's 10 after that. Same thing. It just, you know, just grabbed you by the hair from the get-go and didn't let go. There were some little bit slower songs in there that were very, very deep and had very, very good lyrics. In comparing these two, I'm certainly going to have to lean towards Pearl Jam's 10. I just always felt like they were just more personable to me. It was uh, deeper, more meaningful songs. I like the musicianship, the type of music. Nirvana kind of reminded me a little bit of punk, of which I'm not a huge fan. That being said, I still love both albums. I'm not taking anything away from Nirvana, but if I have to pick, I think Pearl Jam 10 wins, and it's really not even close. I want to thank you guys for coming up with content that's just great to listen to every week, and uh, you guys are just knocking it out of the park. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to weigh in on this. Keep doing what you're doing, and uh, if any of you are listening to Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast for the first time, spread the word. This is a great thing to listen to. Guys, keep it up. You have a great day. All right, D. Well, he agrees with both of us, apparently. Yeah, and thank you very much. Appreciate that. It's always nice to have the compliment, and we really appreciate you listening too, Brad. It's hard to argue against Pearl Jam 10, man. It is such a good album. But those two came out almost exactly the same time as these two that we're comparing, or these three that we're comparing right now, Metallica and Guns N' Roses. So interesting that so many great albums coming out at exactly the same time. I think it's cool that, you know, for Brad anyway, that, that Nirvana and Pearl Jam led him down the road to discover other bands, you know, Smashing Pumpkins and Screaming Trees and some of these other bands that he probably would have never found if it hadn't been for those two albums. Yeah, absolutely. Same thing for me. Same thing for me. I, I had a bunch of Alice in Chains albums that I probably never would have had had it not been for Nirvana and Pearl Jam. 
If you would like to be a part of the Shirley Spotlight, just send us an email <laughs> at Shirley, <laughs> ShirleyPodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear what you have to think. Yeah, just weigh in on anything that you've heard in the past or anything that you know we've got coming up. Send us an audio clip less than three minutes, and if it's really good, we'll pitch you on the show. All right, we ready to go track by track? Let's do it. Let's do track by track. Wait, sorry. Next week. Next week. Ah.